these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at Sira Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to sirahintensive.com to register and for more information. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in We're starting with uh, chapter number 11 Babu ma ja'a fina ali rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam The chapter about the shoes of the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam قال حدثنا محمد بن بشار قال حدثنا أبو داود الطيالسي قال حدثنا همام عن قال حدثنا همام عن قتادة قال قلت لأنس بن مالك رضي الله تعالى عنه كيف كان نعل رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال لهما قبالان قتادة says that I said to Anas ibn Malik رضي الله تعالى عنه how are the shoes of the Messenger ﷺ? He said that they had two ropes or two strings. So very quickly, to, or two straps, I guess is a better word, as the translation says. So the way to understand this is that obvious, uh, obviously a lot of times slippers, as we're used to seeing them, how they're worn. So slippers or flip-flops, as people refer to them a lot of times, is that it has two straps that basically tie back to a place where they go between the toes and then it extends over the foot to help keep the shoe in place. The next narration, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَبُو كُرَيْبٍ مُحَمَّدُ بْنُ الْعَلَىٰ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا وَكِيعٍ عَنْ سُفْيَانَ عَنْ خَالِدٍ عَنْ خَالِدٍ الْحَذَّاءِ عَنْ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ بْنِ الْحَارِثِ عَنْ ابْنِ عَبَّاسٍ رضي الله تعالى عنه رضي الله تعالى عنهما قال كان لنعل رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قبالان مثني شراكهما ابن عباس رضي الله تعالى عنهما relates that the shoes of the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم had two straps each and the straps were double were doubled so the way to understand this is that the straps were basically reinforced so it was two pieces of leather, two leather straps that were either intertwined or basically stitched together to basically reinforce the straps. So they, he had, his shoes had two straps each and they were reinforced straps. The next narration, one of the nuances about the chain of narration that some of the scholars of Hadith point out is that the, one of the narrators that you see there, Khalid al-Hadza, Hadhar literally means shoemaker. So this particular muhaddith was a shoemaker narrating a hadith about the Prophet's some shoes. Cool stuff. <laughs> it's interesting, don't laugh. Alright. Qala haddathana Ahmad ibn Mani'a, qala haddathana Abu Ahmad al-Zubayri, 
قال حدثنا عيسى ابن طهمان قال أخرج إلينا أنس بن مالك رضي الله تعالى عنه نعلين جرداوين لهما قبالان قال فحدثني ثابت بعد عن أنس أنهما كانتا نعلي النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم عيسى بن طهمان رحمه الله تعالى he says Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu presented to us a pair of shoes, Jardawain. The word Jardawain refers to the shoes not having any type of hair on it. They were leather, but the leather was completely tanned down to the point where there was no longer any fur or any hair on it. Lahuma qibalan, they again had two straps each. Qala fahaddathani thabit, thabit told me afterwards from Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu that these were the shoes of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu brings and presents these shoes and then tells them that these are the actual shoes of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. How does that exactly happen? Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu was that young Sahabi who was like the assistant, the Khadim of the Prophet Sallallahu He used to serve the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu And so uh, one of his responsibilities was to keep track of the shoes of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So it's very likely that when the Prophet Sallallahu passed away, Anas Radiallahu Ta'ala Anu may, maybe used to keep a few extra pairs of the shoes of the Prophet Sallallahu on hand. And so he had these, uh, these shoes left over of the Prophet Sallallahu mm-hmm. after his passing. Hadith number four. قال حدثنا إسحاق بن موسى الأنصاري قال حدثنا معن قال حدثنا مالك قال حدثنا سعيد بن أبي سعيد المقبوري عن عبيد بن جريج أنه قال لابن عمر رضي الله تعالى عنهما رأيتك تلبس النعال السبتية السبتية قال إني رأيت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يلبس النعال التي لها التي ليس فيها شعر ويتوضأ فيها فأنا أحب أن ألبسها. عبيد بن جريج رحمه الله تعالى relates that he said to Abdullah bin Umar رضي الله تعالى عنهما once. That I see that you very frequently wear shoes that are made from the tanned hide of a cow. So he said, I saw the Messenger of Allah وسلم, wearing shoes that didn't have any hair on it. It was completely tanned. And he would make wudu in them. So I similarly like to wear them. Couple of things to explain here. First and foremost, familiarity with the narrator himself, Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhuma, was one of he was known, his reputation amongst the Sahaba was A'lamu Bisunati Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam. That he was one of the most well versed and knowledgeable about the exact, precise practice of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhumah was a younger sahabi, the son of Umar ibn al-Khattab. He was somebody with a photographic memory and he was somebody who was very um, close to the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam obviously. 
And so he was very particular about remembering every little detail of the life and the practice of the Prophet ﷺ. So much so there are narrations which talk about later on when he would be walking in the streets of Medina, he would sometimes stop over at a place and he would sit down for a little while. And then he would get up and start walking again. And when, he, when it was asked of him, when inquired, why did you sit down? Is everything okay? He said, one time I was walking with the Prophet ﷺ and he sat down for a little while here, so I always sit down whenever I walk by this path. And so this is again, not so much of the fact that it's like some uh, you know, act of ibadah or worship in and of itself to sit at that particular place, but this is a demonstration of the love that Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhumah had for the Prophet of Allah And we can actually understand that, right? We, we, can, we can relate to that, we can understand that. In today's society, how much emulation there is of the way someone, you know, whether it be a celebrity or an athlete, how they dress, how they walk, how they talk, how they conduct themselves. And it's basically an act of love or devotion, whether somebody recognizes that or not. Right? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and so the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the beloved of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his love is something that brings us closer to the love of Allah. And emulating him to the best of our ability makes us worthy of the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and qualifies us for the love of Allah. So it's really something to think about. So <clears throat> the next thing here in this particular narration is he says, I see that you like to wear shoes. I see that you wear shoes that are sibtiya. Sibtiya specifically refers to the hide of the cow once it's been completely tanned. Once it had been tanned completely to the point where there was no hair or fur remaining, it became solid, smooth. Then they would refer to it as a sibt or sibtiya. So he said that I see that you wear these types of shoes. And so he gives his reasoning. I saw the Messenger of Allah and his shoes were completely tan tanned down to the point where they were smooth. And so that's why I choose to wear them. And then he relates a particular detail that is a little curious, right? When you read just the translation or you look at the narration, that he says that the Messenger of Allah would make wudu in them. So how do we exactly understand that? Because somebody could misunderstand that to say that somehow it's okay to basically just wipe over your shoes when making wudu and that would somehow suffice. No, he didn't say yamsahu alayhima as he said about, uh, as was said in the narration about the leather socks that he would wipe over them but he says yatawadda'u fiha he would make wudu in them. So what that means is that just like if you were wearing some slippers that are open, just basically, again, like the flip-flops, it's just two straps going over your feet. And if you were to make wudu in them, and they're loose to the point that if you move them around just a little bit while they're still on your feet, the water will still get everywhere on your foot, right? So you are still washing your feet. It's like you're washing your feet with your slippers on, all right? And so that's what he said the Messenger of Allah used to do. Some other narrations also give the idea that the reason why he says, يَتَوَضَّعُ fiha they would also use this type of verbiage because sometimes the Prophet ﷺ would actually take off the slippers and wash his feet outside of the slippers. But then while his feet were still wet, he would put them back in. And so then the, the sandal or the slipper would basically get wet. And that's what he refers to as saying, fiha. And of course, being made of leather, this was a way that the Prophet ﷺ would also wash his sandals. Though we, even if we take it literally that he would wash his feet while the sandals were on, it was a way that the Prophet ﷺ would clean his sandals as well. قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا إِسْحَاقُ بْنُ مَنْصُورِ 
قال حدثنا عبد الرزاق عن معمر عن أبي ذئب عن صالح مولى التوأمة عن أبي هريرة رضي الله تعالى عنه قال كان لنعل رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قبالان Abu Huraira radiallahu ta'ala anhu relates and he says that the, mess- the shoes of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam had two straps. So each of the shoes of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam had two straps on them. One, again, little nuance, this narration we've already seen, but one little nuance within the chain of narration again. Salih Mawla At-Taw'ama. This Taw'ama that it refers to um, is referring to uh, the... He, so this narrator, Salih the Tabi'i, he was a freed slave of a woman who is referred to as a Taw'ama, which basically means twin, because she was one of... A pair of twins. So again, you see that here in this particular narration. The next hadith, the next narration. قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَحْمَدُ بْنُ مَنِيعٍ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَبُوْ أَحْمَدٍ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا سُفْيَانٍ عَنِ السُدِّي قَالَ حَدَّثَنِي مَنْ سَمِعَ عَمْرِ بْنِ حُرَيْثٍ يَقُولُ رَأَيْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ يُصَلِّي فِي نَعْلَيْنِ مَخْصُوفَتَيْنِ Amr bin Huraith radiallahu ta'ala anhu relates or, or he used to say that I saw the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa praying while he was wearing shoes that were reinforced. Maqsufatayn in the Arabic language basically refers to that the, the, the soles of the shoe were a little bit thick. That it was one piece of leather and then another piece of leather was attached to it. So the sole was a little bit thicker, was reinforced. So he says, I saw the Messenger of Allah praying and the, the soles of his shoes were, were reinforced, were a little bit thicker. Now obviously this particular narration makes mention of the fact that the Prophet was praying with his shoes on. So this could bring to question again to somebody about what is exactly the ruling of praying with uh, shoes on and is that even permissible or not? The ruling on it is, is that first and foremost, the wearing of shoes or not being, the, the, the wearing of the shoes in and of itself is not something that invalidates the prayer. That is not necessarily, the feet being bare is not one of the requirements of prayer. When you look at shara'itu salah, when you look at the requirements of prayer, it is things such as you being pure and in a state of purity, of cleanliness, having wudu, your clothes are clean, your, the place where you are playing, praying is clean. It is the proper time of the prayer. Your body is appropriately covered. You are facing towards the qibla. And the fact that you have the intention to pray. These are the basic requirements of the prayer. 
This is what's necessary. This is what, this is what has to be in place in order for you to be able to pray and for your prayer to be valid. There being shoes or you being barefoot is not a requirement of the prayer. So that's the first thing to understand. So from that basic premise, we understand that it is obviously permissible, or theoretically, I should say, usulan, it would be permissible to pray without shoes. Now, of course, we go to the life of the Messenger of Allah What have we seen? What have we observed? So we see that the Messenger of Allah the norm in the life of the Prophet is that he would pray without his shoes on. The norm, al-aslu, the norm in the practice of the Prophet ﷺ is that he prayed without his shoes on. Whether he was praying at home, whether he was praying in the masjid, and even sometimes when he was praying outside, that he would remove his shoes. That it was the norm. In exceptional scenarios, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ did pray with his shoes on. Now, as far as praying with your shoes on, are there any requirements or conditions in that regard? So, what we find again in the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ is that he prayed on a few occasions with his shoes on to demonstrate to demonstrate the fact that it is permissible. But we find a particular instance in which the Prophet of Allah was praying with his shoes on and then he removes his shoes in the prayer. And all the Sahaba when they saw, they all took their shoes off. And so afterwards the Messenger of Allah they asked him and he said, you did not have to remove your shoes if your shoes were clean. Jibreel came and informed me that there was najasa, there was something impure, unclean on the sole of my shoe and that's why I was instructed to remove it. So from now we learn the fact that you can in exceptional scenarios pray with your shoes on as long as you are sure and certain of the fact that there is no impurity on your shoes. But if there there is the slightest bit of doubt in that regard, it is better to remove the shoes before praying. Alright? The other thing that the scholars do, however, caution about. When we look in the Quran, we do find an ayah. There's nothing in the Quran is without purpose. And nothing in the Quran is without meaning and without lesson. When Musa alayhi salam enters into the wadi of Tuwa, there to converse with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the first thing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells him is, Remove your shoes, you are in the sacred valley of Tuwa. We do understand from that is that entering into a sacred place, one of the etiquettes, well, one of the etiquette, of the etiquette of entering a sacred place, a blessed place is the removal of shoes. It is symbolic. The Prophet also showed that the removing of shoes is a sign of humility. It's a sign of humility. So removing of the shoes is from the etiquette of entering a sacred place or entering a sacred conversation with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the masajid, the Prophet tells us, Al-Masajidu Bayutullah. The masajid, the masjid is the house of God. It is a sacred place. Prayer is a conversation with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So naturally it is from the etiquette of the prayer that it is better to remove the shoes while praying. And so based off of that ayah of the Qur'an and the fact that the norm in the life of the Prophet ﷺ was removing of the shoes when praying, the scholars do say that while it is permissible to pray with shoes on, it should not be made the norm, it should remain an exception. That it can actually become makru, it can become problematic and disliked if somebody makes it a very frequent practice. Right, so to avoid that, even if somebody ends up praying at a workplace or something like that on a daily basis, it is best to remove the shoes more often than praying with the shoes on. Let it remain an exception because that's how it was practiced by the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wallahu ta'ala alamu bis sawab.
And of course, uh, scholars mentioned something that's very common sense. And that is that now, particularly that we have carpets and things like that in the masjid, bringing in shoes from the outside would just pollute the carpet anyway, so it's better to avoid it altogether. I'll take the question afterwards, inshallah. The next narration, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا إِسْحَاقُ بْنُ مُوسَى الْأَنصَارِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مَعًا قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مَالِكْ عَنْ أَبِي الزِّنَادِ عَنِ الْأَعْرَجِ عَنْ أَبِي هُرَيْرَةَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى عَنْهُمَا رضي الله تعالى عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال لا يمشي أن أحدكم في نعل واحدة لينعل لينعله لينعلهما جميعا أو ليخ أو ليخ فيها فيهما جميعا. The next narration Abu Hurairah رضي الله تعالى عنه says that the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم said and again you have a hadith قولي here in a chapter that is largely observational. You have the words of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم in a chapter that is mostly observing the conduct or the behavior of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم. Abu Hurairah رضي الله تعالى عنه relates that the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم said none of you should walk wearing only one shoe. Either wear both of them or take both of them off. And this is, of course, the Prophet of Allah sallallahu teaching us, just again, etiquette. And the primary reason for this, a couple of things that the scholars do mention, even though it seems we, we can understand what the Prophet sallallahu is saying, is that, of course, the scholars do mention that the reason why the Prophet of Allah sallallahu is recommending this, number one, is just to be more dignified, to be more respectful, to have a certain amount of uh, maturity and sophistication and how we behave and how we conduct ourselves. So to be walking around with one shoe on is problematic looking to say the least. Right? It's just weird looking, funny looking. You would doubt that person's mental state possibly. right? Different things like that. It's just weird and bizarre. So the Prophet saying maybe you lost a shoe or maybe one of, the, one of your shoes like the straps broke off or something. So then take both of them off. Right? Hold them in your hand and walk without your shoes. That's better than walking around with one shoe on. Of course, this is... Um, and, and the other benefit, of course, scholars mentioned because of this is, obviously, it's probably not very good for just, you know, even your balance and your posture. So you see that wisdom in the advice of the Prophet ﷺ. And then the other thing is, of course, there's exceptions to the rule. If you obviously have a cast on a foot or some type of injury on a foot, then that would, of course, be the exception. But this, what he's telling us here is the norm. The next narration, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا عَنْ مَالِكِ بْنِ أَنَسْ عَنْ نَحْوَهُ It's a very similar narration. Imam Tirmidhi just brings it from another chain, another route. Hadith number nine of this chapter, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا إِسْحَاقُ بْنُ مُوسَى قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مَعًا قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مَالِكَ عَنَّ أَبِ الزُّبَيْرِ عَنْ جَابِرِ رضي الله تعالى عنه أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم نهى أن يأكل يعني الرجل بشماله أو يمشي في نعل واحدة جابر رضي الله تعالى عنه relates that the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم prohibited that a person should not eat with their left hand right and they should not walk wearing one shoe now again to explain the concept, we've talked, we've, I've alluded to this a little bit before. We're going to go through the mannerism or the etiquette of the Prophet ﷺ and how we used to eat food. But the Prophet ﷺ emphasized, Kul biyaminik, eat with your right hand. The Prophet ﷺ used to like using the right hand for good things. 
right? So food should be eaten with the right hand. We talked about the narration where the Prophet told somebody to eat with their right hand and he was fully capable of it and he was a bit abrasive and arrogant with the Prophet and the Prophet said, you won't be able to. And that person actually lost the use of his hand because of the disrespect towards the Prophet of Allah Right? And so a person should eat with their right hand. That is the etiquette that was taught to us by the Prophet And similarly, a person should not walk with only one shoe on. So this again telling us that what is befitting of a believer, what is the proper etiquette of conduct, even in daily activity. And one of the other things is, of course, both of these scenarios have their exceptions. Like we talked about, if somebody has a cast on one foot, they're obviously not going to be wearing a shoe on one foot. That is the exception, not the rule. All right, that is not the norm. And similarly, somebody should eat with their right hand as much as possible, but if somebody obviously does not have the use of their right hand or has an injury or whatever the case may be, then of course they will have to eat with their left hand. And then again, that is the exception and not the rule. All right, one of the benefits that can be talked about here, one of the understandings that we can extract, the philosophies that we can extract from this is the fact that the Prophet of Allah through this instruction is actually teaching us the fact that the life of a believer and Islam in its very essence is not something that is solely a religion of ritualistic worship. Islam is not only relevant to us when we walk into the masjid for those five minutes when we're going to pray salah. And that is uh, unfortunately a very common understanding of religion today. Even within the Muslim community, it's something that is becoming a very common misunderstanding. And I would even go as far as saying that there are even certain you know, ideologies or certain thoughts that are being propagated in the community that would like to present Islam as something that should just stay confined for five minutes for five times a day. Or for not eating food during daylight hours in Ramadan. Or what you do for those five, six days of Hajj when you're over there. And outside of that, please leave Islam out of the conversation. Why don't we go about and just, you know, doing things however we see fit, figuring things out for ourselves. Why don't we just leave this religious, religion stuff out of the conversation? And everybody does pretty much what they can figure out and what they would like to do. But what we have to understand is that there's, it's problematic. And as I oftentimes tell the students, one extreme breeds the other. This extreme only exists because there is an opposite extreme. There is an opposite extreme that is extremely unintelligent, uneducated, unsophisticated in their understanding of the religion. Where they don't understand, they don't know, let alone propagate or talk or preach about the ethics and the morals and the values, the justice, the fairness, the equality of Islam. And they've turned Islam into a set of very, very narrow, rigorous rulings that are suffocating people. And what that does is that type of an extreme, extreme approach breeds the opposite extreme. And now you have people that say that, well, if that's Islam, then I'd rather not have it. Then please leave it out of my life. Let me go to work. Let me live life. Let me eat food. Let me conduct myself, do business, financial. Tra let me take care of all of this stuff. And yeah, okay, fine. Islam is nice for five minutes, five times a day. Five minutes each. That's good. But no, what we have to, we have to correct this misunderstanding by correcting the other misunderstanding. We have to educate ourselves and understand the values that Islam preaches. 
And then when we bring those values to the table, then is people will a, would actually welcome the implementation of Islam in every aspect and every facet of life. And this is again the Prophet ﷺ teaching us here that Islam is something that is dignified in its behavior and in its conduct. The eating of food with the right hand. Use your right hand to do good things. You use your left hand to handle maybe unclean things, unfit things. That Islam is even telling you how to be sophisticated in your conduct and how to present yourself in society. Moving on to the next narration. حدثنا قتيبة عن مالك قال حدثنا وحدثنا إسحاق بن موسى قال حدثنا معا قال حدثنا مالك عن أبي الزناد عن الأعرج عن أبي هريرة رضي الله تعالى عنه أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال إذا تعلى أحدكم فليبدأ باليمين وإذا نزع فليبدأ بالشمال فلتكن اليمنى أولهما أولهما تنعل وآخر وآخرهما تنزع أبو هريرة رضي الله تعالى عنه relates that the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم said that whenever any one of you puts their shoes on they should start by putting on the right shoe and when they are removing their shoes they should remove the left shoe first so let the right shoe be the first one that is put on and the last one that is taken off. Right? So the first one that is put on and the second one when taking off. This again is showing you the implementation of Islam within just one's daily conduct. Something as simple and as basic and routine as wearing and taking off your shoes. Again, the deeper understanding in the philosophy here is this helps to breed that taqwa, that God-consciousness, that sometimes so, seems so elusive to us. Right? Taqwa oftentimes seems like, that's, like that elusive thing or idea. Well, this, is, this tells us how to develop and inculcate taqwa within our lives. That everything that you do, when you're putting your shoes on, you say bismillah. And you're putting the right one on first, reminding yourself of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, remembering God even when putting your shoes on. Then what do you think will be the conduct of that person when they actually go outside that's why the Prophet ﷺ told Aisha, one time Aisha anha was leaving the house, and the Prophet of Allah ﷺ taught her to say when you leave the house, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min an adilla an udal, an azilla aw uzal, an adlima aw udlam, an ajhala aw yujhala alayya. That ya Aisha, when you leave the home, then say, O oh God, O oh Allah, I take refuge with you, I ask you to protect me, I take refuge with you from going astray or leading someone else astray. From slipping or causing someone else to slip. From doing wrong or from doing wrong to someone else or someone else doing wrong to me. From victimizing someone else or someone victimizing me. And from behaving ignorantly with someone else or someone else behaving them or conducting themselves with me in an ignorant manner or fashion. Right, so again, think about how that person will conduct themselves when they've said this before they've left their home. It's a different mindset. So if we just simply implemented the practice where we were thinking, we stopped when putting on our shoes and rushing out of our house, we stopped for just a second. And we said, Bismillah, we put our right shoe on first and then put on our left shoe, reminding ourselves of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then how will we conduct ourselves when we go out? And then when we come back into our homes and a lot of times we're tired or fatigued or you know, frustrated or exhausted or whatever the case may be, 
But then when we enter back into our homes, we enter back into our home with the dua, right? Oh Allah, with your name I enter my home. And then we again stop for a second saying Bismillah, removing our left shoe first and then taking our right shoe off afterwards. Reminding ourselves of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala real quickly. Think about how now we'll conduct ourselves within the home. We'll think twice before snapping on someone. Because we've reminded ourselves of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is taqwa. This is the concept of taqwa and this is the byproduct of taqwa. That taqwa breeds this type of conduct and behavior. The next narration, hadith number 11 from the chapter. قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَبُو مُوسَى مُحَمَّدُ بْنُ الْمُثَنَّى قال حدثنا محمد بن جعفر قال حدثنا شعبة قال حدثنا أشعث وهو ابن أبي الشعثاء عن أبيه عن مسروق عن عائشة رضي الله تعالى عنها قالت كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يحب تيمن ما استطاع في ترجله وتناعله وطهوره the mother of the believers Aisha رضي الله تعالى عنها says that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم used to love doing things with the rights or used to give preference to the rights when doing things as much as possible. Masata'a, as much as possible. For instance, when combing his hair or when putting on his shoes or when washing himself or cleansing himself. So when he would make wudu, he would wash the right arm before the left arm. He would wash the right foot before the left foot. Hadith number 12 of the chapter. قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مُحَمَّدُ بْنُ مَرْزُوقَ أَبُوْ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا عَبْدُ الرَّحْمَنُ بْنُ قَيْسٍ أَبُوْ مُعَاوِيَةِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا هِشَامْ عَنْ مُحَمَّدَ عَنْ أَبِي هُرَيْرَةَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى عَنْهُ قَالَ كَانَ لِنَعْلِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ قِبَالَانِ وَأَبِي بَكْرٍ وَعُمَرَ وَأَوَّلُ مَنْ عَقَدَ عَقْدًا وَاحِدًا عُثْمَانٍ أَبُو هُرَيْرَةَ Radiallahu ta'ala anhu relates that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam's shoes had two straps each. And the same for Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhumah. Meaning they also wore similar shoes to the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And the first one who wore shoes that had only one strap was Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So to understand exactly what does that mean, there wasn't a lot of explanation. I looked through a couple of dozen actually, different books of hadith and explanations from the ulama. Um, so there wasn't a lot of detailed explanation about that particular shoe of Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu. But basically the idea seems to be that the other type of slipper that we might be, might be used to wearing, that the one type of slipper is that where there are two straps that are going between from between the toes. And then sometimes there's a type of slipper where there's one strap just going across the top of the foot. So that's what Abu Huraira radiallahu ta'ala is describing, that the Prophet wore the type of sandal where there were two straps from between the toes. And then Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu ta'ala wore the same type of shoe. So that means that either they wore it in emulation of the Prophet which again was very common, because of the love that they had for the Prophet ﷺ, or that it was just a very common type of shoe within that culture. 
And then Uthman had a different preference. His shoe, even though he was very familiar with the type of shoe the Prophet wore, he was somebody whose love for the Messenger of Allah cannot be doubted in the slight bit. In the slightest, you can't doubt the love that he had for the Prophet right? But he preferred the type of shoe where there was just one strap that would go across the top of the foot. And the reason why Imam Tirmidhi ta'ala brings this hadith in this narration, at the very end of the chapter about the shoes of the Prophet so as to demonstrate the fact that we've seen a do- almost a dozen narrations talking about the fact that the shoes of the Prophet had two straps, but by no means you know, does that mean that it is somehow impermissible to wear a shoe that is different. But just as we've talked about in terms of clothing or in terms of hairstyle or anything else, al-asl fi al-ashya al-ibaha that the general rule for these types of things is permissibility. As long as it's not violating some firm, sound rule of the sharia. How could the, uh, you know, some rule of sharia be violated in terms of shoes? That either it would be made from something that is impermissible, like it would be made from, you know, pigskin. Or number two, that it was violating some rule of sharia that they are stolen shoes. There's somebody else's shoes, all right? Something like that. That that's the only way that you would be violating some rule of sharia. Outside of that, generally speaking, so as long as they're made of permissible material and they were acquired through permissible means, then it is a permissible form of a shoe. Alhamdulillah. The twelfth chapter, Babu Majaafi Dikri Khatami Rasulilahi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This is the chapter about the ring of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now this is not referring to Khatamun Nubuwa, the seal of prophethood. That was the earlier chapter in his description. This is talking literally about the ring that he used to wear. And Again, you see the particularness and the attention to detail that scholars had, that if you look back at all the other title, uh, the chapters of the titles that we've seen, Babu ma ja'a fi na'ali Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Babu ma ja'a fi khuffi Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Babu ma ja'a fi sha'ari Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, it always says the chapter about the hair, the clothing, the shoes, the socks of the Messenger of Allah This is the first time and one of the only instances where he says, Babu Majafi Dikri Khatami Rasulillah. The chapter that mentions, not about, but the chapter that mentions the ring of the Prophet, so that nobody would confuse this chapter with the earlier chapter that was about the seal of prophethood. Right? So that type of attention to detail. Moving forward, the very first hadith. قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا قُتَيْبَةُ بْنُ سَعِيدٍ وَغَيْرُ وَاحِدٍ عَنْ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ بْنِ وَهْبٍ عَنْ يُونُسْ عَنْ إِبْنِ شِهَابٍ عَنْ أَنَسِ بْنِ مَالِكٍ رضي الله تعالى عنه قَالَ كَانَ خَاتَمُ النَّبِيِّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ مِنْ وَرِيقٍ وَكَانَ فَصُّهُ حَبَشِيًّا Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu relates 
that the ring of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, was made of silver. And the, the gem or the top of the ring was from Abyssinia, was Habashi. Now, a couple of things to explain here first and foremost. Obviously, the word khatam itself refers to a ring. And in the Arabic language itself, lughatan, what they basically, and so the word khatam in and of itself refers to usually something that either it has some type of an imprint, or either it also linguistically literally refers to something that sticks out from the surface. An imprint, basically. Again, right? When you imprint something, then you change the surface of it. So that's what literally refers to, and that's why the seal that was on the back of the Prophet the seal of Prophethood, was elevated from his back. That's why it was called the seal of Prophethood. This ring also, for that very same reason, that a ring normally has some type of a gem, or some type of a stone, or some type of a design on top of it, and that's why it's literally in the Arabic language called the Khatam. One little nuance again, based on the, uh, from the Arabic language again, is that if a ring, does not have a stone or any type of an imprint or a design or anything on it. Basically what we refer to in English as a band, right? So if a ring doesn't have some type of a stone or a design on it, but it's just simply a band, then in the Arabic language it's not called a khatam, it's called a fatakha, fatakha. It's referred to as fatakha. A band is referred to as Fatakha, at least in classical Arabic. Now, a little bit of detail about it. He says that the ring of the Prophet ﷺ was made from min wariq. What is wariq? Wariq is another word in the Arabic language for silver, fidda. It was made from silver. Alright? And then it says that fasuhu, kind of fasuhu. Fas usually refers to whatever is on top of the ring, the top of the ring. All right, where the design is or the stone is placed. And it says that the top of the ring was Abyssinia, was from Abyssinia. Now there's a little bit of discussion here amongst the ulama, amongst the scholars, that they say that did it actually have a stone or not? Because there's other narrations that we'll see that it refers to the fact that even the, where the stone would normally be, that in and of itself was also silver. That was silver itself. That it didn't have a stone. But this now says that the, fuss, the stone of it was Abyssinian, was from Abyssinia. So how do we understand that? Number one, one uh, thought of the scholars is that what, the, what they actually mean is that the ring was made in Abyssinia and was one of the gifts sent for the Prophet ﷺ by an Najashi, by the Muslim king of Abyssinia. All right, the other thought is that the Prophet ﷺ did actually have multiple rings, and one of the rings that he had was gifted to him by the king of Abyssinia, and that particular ring did actually have a stone in it. But as we're going to read, it was not the ring that the Prophet ﷺ normally wore. Let's go ahead and read forward, and as we kind of go forward, we'll keep kind of talking about some of the rules pertaining to just jewelry and the wearing of rings. The next narration, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا قُتَيْبَ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَبُوْ عَوَانَا عَنَ بِبِشْرٍ عَنْ نَافِعًا بْنِ عُمَرٍ 
radiyallahu ta'ala anhum anna nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallama ittakhada khataman min fiddatin fakana yakhtumu bihi wala yalbasuhu Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu ta'ala anhum says that the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had a ring made from silver the prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had a ring made from silver and he used to use it to um, seal or he used to use it to seal documents to make documents official and he would not normally wear it. Or it can also be understood as he would not uh, wear it all the time. He would sometimes not wear it. And so now we're getting into a little bit more detail and if another coming narration is going to explain this further, but basically the scholars, they say, most of the ulama, most of the scholars, they say that in the sixth year of, prof in the sixth year of hijrah, in the sixth year of the Prophet's residence in Medina, the Prophet of Allah intended to send letters to various kings and rulers of different areas, inviting them to Islam. And so at that particular time, the Prophet was advised by some of the Sahaba that, O Messenger of Allah, some of the non-Arab leaders, they do not accept a letter from another leader unless and until it has been sealed some way. So at that time, the Prophet of Allah وسلم, had basically requested that a ring be made. And so the name of the Sahabi that basically made the ring for the Prophet of Allah وسلم, is also mentioned that his name was Ya'la. Ya'la radiallahu ta'ala anhu was basically um, hired by the Prophet of Allah وسلم, where he was given the task to make a ring for the Prophet Ibn Sayyid al-Nas in Uyun al-Athar actually claims that this occurred in the beginning of the seventh year of Hijrah. But it's reconciled that the Prophet of Allah actually intended to write the letters in the end of the sixth year, and that's when the ring was made at the advice of the Sahaba, the letter, but when he actually placed the stamp, that was in the beginning of the seventh year, and that's when the letters were delivered on behalf of the Prophet now Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhumah saying that the Prophet did not wear the ring. What does that exactly mean? So as, I'm, as I explained when translating it, the language in and of itself is more general, is not necessarily definitive. And it can mean one of both things. It can either mean that, mean that he did not wear it, he did not wear it normally, or it can also mean la yalbisuhu ahyanan. Sometimes he would not wear it. So it could have been that Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu ta'ala at that particular time saw the Prophet without the ring on. And so his observation was that I didn't see him wearing it. But there are other narrations which clearly mention the fact that the Prophet was wearing his ring. So it's just a matter of observation. The next narration, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مَحْمُودُ بْنُ غَيْلَانَ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا حَفْصُ بْنُ عُمَرْ إِبْنُ عُبَيْدُ هُوَ الطَّنَافِسِ قال حدثنا زهير أبو خيثم عن حميد عن أنس عن أنس بن مالك رضي الله تعالى عنه قال كان خاتم رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم من فضة فصه منه. This is a narration I was talking about. Anas ibn Malik anhu says that the ring of the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam was made from silver, and it's where the gem normally would be placed was also silver, that it basically did not have a stone. That's what it's saying, that it did not have a stone. 
What did it have if it didn't have a stone? It's something that we're going to read in a narration that's basically coming up. The next hadith, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا إِسْحَاقُ بْنُ مَنْصُورِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مُعَادُ بْنُ هِشَامِ قَالَ حَدَّثَنِي أَبِي عَنْ قَتَادَ عَنْ أَنَسِ بْنِ مَالِكٍ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى عَنْهُ قَالَ لَمَّا أَرَادَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ أَنْ يَكْتُبَ إِلَى الْعَجَمِ قِيلَ لَهُ إِنَّ الْعَجَمَ لَا يَقْبَلُونَ إِلَّا كِتَابًا عَلَيْهِ خَاتَمٌ فَاصْطَنَعَ خَاتَمًا فَكَأَنِّي أَنْظُرُ إِلَى بَيَاضِهِ فِي كَفِّهِ Anas bin Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu relates that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when he intended to write and send letters, to have letters sent to the different um, rulers in some of the non-Arab kingdoms at that time, it was said to him, it was suggested to him that, O oh, Messenger of Allah, the non-Arab rulers do not accept a letter unless it has a seal from an authority on it. So at that time, the Prophet ﷺ had a ring made, and he says, it's as if I can still see the ring, the, the white of the ring, or the silver part of the ring, the shine of the ring, it's as if I can still see it in his palm. In his palm. So that's another narration that we're going to read again later on that's a little bit more explicit. But basically what this tells us now is that the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, a lot of times he would turn the ring so that the top of the ring basically um, was turned inward towards his palm. He would not have it outwards to where it was displayed. He would turn it inwards to where it was facing inwards towards his palm. Now... As we're going to read in the further narrations, that the illah here, the reason for the making of the ring has been explicitly stated within this narration. That the ring had a very specific purpose. And the specific purpose of the ring was that the Prophet ﷺ had this ring made for the purpose of placing a seal and not so much for the purpose of adornment or beauty. That this was not something the Prophet ﷺ did as a form of decoration, but this was more so, you had a practical purpose to it, and that was as a head of state, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ used it to place his seal and his stamp when he would send letters off to some of the kings. And that's why, to further now demonstrate that you find in the narration, the illah is basically being confirmed. And that's why when the Prophet ﷺ was not using it, he would basically turn it inwards so that the design that was on the ring, the seal that was on the ring was facing inwards towards his palm. It was not facing outwards because it was not something that he used. He didn't like drawing attention to it. So then he would turn it inwards towards his palm. That the Prophet ﷺ was not very keen on it as a form of you know, jewelry, but more so because it served a functional purpose. And I'll be talking about some of the rulings based off of that towards uh, the end of the chapter. The next hadith, hadith number five. <laughs> قال حدثنا محمد بن عبد الله الأنصاري قال حدثني أبي عن ثمامة عن أنس بن مالك رضي الله تعالى عنه قال كان نقش خاتم رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم محمد سطر ورسول سطر والله سطر 
Anas bin Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu relates that the ring, that the design on the ring of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa was Muhammad on one line, Rasul on one line, and Allah on one line. So before I go forward, just kind of commenting on something very fascinating within the chain of narration itself here again, that this is of course being narrated by Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Thumama, Thumama is yes. Thumama is the um, grandson of Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Thumama is the grandson of Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And then uh, Muhammad ibn Abdullah al Ansari is saying that my father related this to me. Alright, so you see again that the, the hadith is basically being passed on between family. That Anas bin Malik is teaching this narration to his own grandson. Now the narration itself says that the design uh, on the ring of the Prophet so now this is telling us what was the seal of the Messenger that it had the word Muhammadur Rasulullah because that is the signature of the Prophet And the Prophet specifically chose this, even though there's a number of ways that this could be said as well, but he chose this because this is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala referred to him in Surah Al-Fatih itself, Muhammadur Rasulullah. All right, so in Surah Al-Fatih in the Quran, this is how Allah refers to him, and this is what the Prophet chose as a seal and as a signature. But it did not say Muhammadur Rasulullah all in one line, but it was Muhammad on one line, Rasul on a second line, and Allah on the third line. Now, this brings into question a lot of times what you've proper, very popularly what you've seen is that usually it's written, but it's written in the reverse. Allah on the top line, Rasul on the second line, and then Muhammad on the third line. All right? Even though when you read the narrations, it's saying that it was Muhammad on one line, Rasul on the second line, and Allah on the third line. So when you read the narration, this hadith is found in Bukhari as well, said exactly the same way. Muhammad satrun, Rasulun satrun, Allahi satrun, Muhammadur Rasulullah. But now popularly what we've seen today is that whenever that shape of the ring of the Prophet is presented or drawn out or replicated, then it is always done in reverse order that you read from bottom going up to the top. Muhammadur Rasulullah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. Right? Where did this exactly come from? First and foremost, there's no authentic narration that points to the fact that gives us any idea that it was actually written in reverse order. There's no authentic narration pointing to that. One of the earlier scholars of hadith actually, you can say, um, without being disrespectful, generally speaking, one of the earlier scholars of hadith speculated